Hello everybody and welcome to this next episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Bishop Michael Nazir Ali from Oxford. So this is Edinburgh to Oxford and um, Michael's very, very kindly agreed to give some of his time today to help us in our season looking at all the prophets and picking up from David Robertson last week who finished with Elijah. We're now coming into the the wonderful life of Elisha. So we're going to we're going to be talking about that today. But Michael, it would be it would be remiss of me not to w- firstly welcome you. Are you doing okay? Oh, yes, fine. Thank you very much. And uh you're looking very sharp and dapper. You 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 you've, you you <laughs> you've, you've I'm actually me... feeling rather hot at the moment. But Are yeah. You? yeah. You, well, nonetheless, you look very sharp. And I wonder if you'd be kind enough, because I've got a couple of notes here about you, unsurprisingly, in terms of helping our listeners just to know a little bit about your history, your background, your your ministry, in effect. And it started for you, didn't it, years years and years ago in Pakistan. You were born in Pakistan, I think, in the, in the late 40s. And the thing that I was interested in, just as I did a little bit of research, is, is the experience of your father's conversion from Shia Islam. Yeah. Would you mind just saying a little bit about that? Because that does relate to what you're doing now in Oxford. You were the Bishop of Rochester for about 15 years, and then now now you're working in Oxford. We'll come to what you're doing in Oxford in a minute, but maybe that would contextualise your, your current work by, by speaking about that conversion in your family. Sure. Well, um, I come from a large Shia family, as uh, you've just said, and uh, many of them still are uh, Shia Muslims. Most of them are. And um, my father came to, uh, to faith in Christ uh, through the witness uh, of friends and the friendship of friends, I suppose I should say. Mm. Um, so we were brought up in a mixed situation of him with his Christian faith. He was very quiet about it, um, not at all sort of pushy or aggressive in any way. And uh, with the rest of the family, of course, being Shia Muslims. So I personally came to uh, a living faith in Christ at university uh, through the work uh, of, a, of an Anglican chaplain, actually. This is in the University of Karachi. It was my first university. And uh, religious leaders were forbidden from coming onto the campus. So you may ask, well, how did this chaplain get on? <laughs> and uh, uh, the way he did it was to register as a postgraduate student. <laughs> so there's always a way. I mean, yes. and from him is that there's always a way. Um, anyway, um, he was um, influential in uh, um, in my faith and in my call to ministry. So um, I then. Um, came to England to study and uh, in a some minor teaching uh, after that. Uh, And then I went back to Pakistan uh, for many years to work in parishes and in a college. And I then became a bishop in Pakistan. Uh, And my diocese of that time was not really known for very much, except that it was the, the town where it was centered was the, was and is, uh, the center for an international Islamic missionary movement, the Tablighi Jamaat. So I learned about 
the keenness of Muslims to spread their faith, <laughs> uh, quite a lot of that there, mm. and you know how Christians should respond in that situation where we were a small minority in the face of this quite dominant presence. Uh, I headed the CMS, the Church Mission Society, which is the largest Anglican missionary society. And then I became Bishop of Rochester, as you just said, for, for many years. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, I'm imagining you mentioned, without lingering too, too much on your father or your family history there, but it just is intriguing to me, particularly in the context that we're going to come into shortly in terms of the prophet Elisha, that although your father sounds like a very gentle, unassuming, non-pushy type of character, as you describe, it must have been very costly and risky for him and for for your whole family. Yes, well, it was, and it, it remains that. Um, so even my name, uh, it sometimes opens doors, uh, but at other times it is um, it can be dangerous. I have... I have kept it, although many Christians have urged me to change it, to change it, but I've kept it because it is an important way of witnessing, sometimes without saying very much at all. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. Thank you for that. Um, and your work now, just briefly, in Oxford does yeah. dovetail with that, doesn't it, in the sense of its focus, and that seems incredibly timely to talk about briefly um, yeah. with regards to Afghanistan and what's going on in the world. Could you maybe just explain for folk what's, what's going on with the Oxford Centre of Training, Research, Advocacy and Dialogue, or Oxtrad for short? Yes, the reason uh, under the Lord that we began this work was that uh, Christian leaders in churches where there's been some serious persecution were saying to me uh, repeatedly, insistently, Please help us to develop our leadership because in such churches, it is, as I have personal experience, it's the leadership that suffers first. They are the ones who are exiled or imprisoned or even killed in some circumstances. Um, I've just been in in Ireland at a missionary convention with uh, a, a young woman whose father, whom I knew, uh, was one of the first martyrs after the Iranian revolution. Um, so this, this is still happening. And um, um, so having prayed about it, I thought that is what I should mm-hmm. do. And that is what I've done for the last 11, 12 years now nearly uh, at every level. So uh, leadership at every level in terms of theological education or preparation for ministry, uh, enabling of ministry, and, yeah. uh, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting now what you say about uh, leaders being the most at risk. Are you meaning that from a, an international perspective or including Britain? Oh, no. Well, I mean, when I started, it was my focus was certainly overseas. But then some people challenged me uh, in this country and they said, well, it's all right for you to do all these things for people far away. What about us here? Mm-hmm. So I've become increasingly conscious of and involved in supporting Christians in public life and professions in their jobs who are under threat uh, in losing their jobs or their professional accreditation in some cases or their place in public life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the world has changed, hasn't it, since um, 2009 when you when you stopped in Rochester, presumably into Oxford at that point. So the world has changed hugely in that time. And I'm putting my finger here just on this point that where the ministry, where your ministry now is to the church, um, where the church is under pressure, that would look quite different abroad, I think, to to here in a British context, although the although the the net result would be the same, but there's different types of pressure for church leaders, for for folk in the congregation, and so on. You, maybe you could just comment about that, and maybe that I don't know if that relates to your um, to your term as a bishop in Rochester, in terms of how you've observed that change in the British scene. Mm. Um, in, in recent years. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously what's happening here uh, is not like martyrdom in Iran or the blasphemy law and its victims in Pakistan or what is happening today in Afghanistan. Um, nevertheless, if you lose your job, if you lose your professional registration, uh, if you lose your place in public life in the magistracy, for instance, or whatever, then that is a real deprivation. It, um, and persecution, in any case, often starts with exclusion and discrimination. Mm -hmm. So I think there are points of contact, and in every case, there are differences, um, yeah. even overseas. Um, it's not all the same. Mm -hmm. uh, I think leaders in this country will be increasingly vulnerable um, because there'll be pressure on, from the culture uh, to capitulate and to toe its line. And anyone who resists will be a target, mm -hmm. is a target. Yeah. Yes, that, that word capitulation, uh, just thinking of, of your commenting on, on the situation in Iran as well. I was just reminded very briefly of a story of a, an Iranian couple who had wanted at all costs to get out of Iran to come to America because of the perceived freedom and benefits and so on as, as America affords. But no sooner had they come to America, the, the lady actually of the couple in particular had felt, in her words, this satanic lullaby spiritually that she had not anticipated in being in the West and coming out from um, it's this topsy-turvy world where your life will be in danger in Iran in a way that it won't be in America, but your spiritual health will yeah. be at risk in America potentially in a way that it wouldn't be in Iran as a, as a believer in, in the Messiah. So, um, I think that's correct. I mean, I remember Mother Teresa used to say that... Um, she only came across spiritual poverty when she came to the West. Mm. Yes. It's, it's sobering even just stopping to think about that. Um, let's, let's think about Elisha then. Maybe, maybe that is a, a sobering point to come to the, to the prophets and thinking of, um, and this is a British reality for us today, isn't it? You know, the, 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 some people have lost their jobs in recent years for, for not capitulating. Um, church leaders, some in rare cases, have lost their church buildings for not capitulating and so forth. Um, but the prophetic, and again, people listening to this conversation between us today will have listened to the, to the previous episode, so I don't need to set the context particularly. 
apart from just reiterating this point that the prophets often were lonely, mysterious, misunderstood and maligned figures, not so much by the lost, unregenerate world, but by the by the people of God. Um, and so I wondered, have you got any opening thoughts on Elisha? I just thought there about him, he would have lost his job, you know, his vocational um, uh, context where Elijah commissions him would have immediately cost his family something um, to be faithful. Yes, I mean, um, uh, Elisha is, of course, a successor of Elijah. And uh, in that sense, that social alienation of refusing uh, to capitulate to the demands of the temporal rulers. I mean, that persists with him. Um, his name, by the way, means God is salvation. So I'm sure that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, remained with him. Um, Hebrew names, as very often in many parts of the world, actually uh, have an active meaning um, that people carry with them. But yeah, uh, when um, he was called, um, this is recorded in um, 1 Kings 19, um, he um, gave up everything, literally, that he had. Um, he seems to have come from a quite a, a, a well-heeled family by the description of what he was doing. Um, and so he gave all of that up um, to follow Elijah, to become a disciple at first, uh, before he became a prophet, as it were, he was a disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only uh, with um, Elijah's departure that uh, he took on, literally took on Elijah's mantle um, and became a prophet. His, um, his work is actually uh, more similar to the earliest prophets and seers like Samuel, for instance, uh, more like them than, for instance, the writing prophets um, that came, well, some of them were almost contemporary with him, but some that came later. Yeah. Um, so it's really a, what, a lot of what we know about Elisha is through his acts rather than his speech. The the yeah the there's an interesting contrast there between the kind of vocational context that we see in one Kings nineteen and um, even how Elijah was dealing with well, the Lord was dealing with Elijah just immediately prior to that wasn't it in a in a cave in the gentle whisper of the Lord and so on. Um, do you th- how do you think thinking about Luke twenty four and the road to Emmaus and that's our our anchored thought really for this whole season and as the Lord opened to those two particular disciples, everything in the scriptures concerning himself. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, as you've looked at Elisha and maybe thought about Elijah sh- handing over in that way and our British context with your wealth of experience internationally with a focus on Islam and so on, is there anything particular that's seemed apt for, for where we're currently at in, in the church generally? Yes, I mean, uh, the the immediate um, instruction to Elijah to call Elisha is in the context of the remnant. So uh, after that great experience that Elijah has on the holy mountain, he is then told to to call Elijah, uh, Elisha, among other things. 
but it's in the context of a remnant. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Um, so Elisha is to be a leader of that remnant. And we find actually uh, one of the things about Elisha, which is different from Elijah, is that he's at the head of a band of people. Uh, they are called the Bani Ha-Nevi'im, the sons of the prophets. Um, and um, they uh, are engaged with Elisha in, in the work that he does. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is this context of the remnant, of the remnant in, a, in an apostate situation. Mm-hmm. Does, going back to when you finished in Rochester, Michael, do, is there any point there in terms of your seeing the, the capitulation or the degeneration in faithfulness in the church that led you? In other words, do you, do you consider the church generally to be apostate now? David Robertson said, you know, he voluntarily said that last week. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, churches, you know what Billy Graham said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it lest you spoil it. So nobody's claiming or looking for, expecting perfection in churches, in denominations or in congregations, Mm -hmm. um, because there are always sinners and saints uh, in the churches, and we are ourselves both sinners and saints, each one of us. But um, that is different from churches and their leadership actually beginning to teach differently from what the Bible teaches and how the church has always taught. I think that's the red line. That's the thin end of the wedge. And um, I am very aware that uh, many mainline denominations have either crossed the red line or are on it or in danger of crossing it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Do you think, and you mentioned the word remnant there for Elisha's context, I, uh, do you think, where, where does that hit the road today? Yes, there are in, uh, in many churches, in most churches, in all churches, uh, there is a remnant of faithful people, uh, even when the leadership of the church has changed its official doctrine or its mm. practice. Um, mm-hmm or is uh, compromising with culture. Um, But that is not, um, as it were, a stable situation because uh, the remnant or people within that remnant have continually to ask, what is my place here now? Mm -hmm. Um, And um, the stories of Elijah and Elisha show us that um, sometimes the um, the calling to that remnant can be to go out when it is no longer sustainable for them faithfully to remain within, mm-hmm. when it's actually uh, a counter witness um, if they remain mm-hmm. to Christ. Yeah. So, of course, everyone has to make that decision themselves Mm -hmm. um, and different people make those decisions differently Mm -hmm. but this is a live question yeah yes the 
the way that we would phrase that or, or the way that we have talked about that in we did a we, a couple of, it was a, just before the lockdown in fact just before there was any public awareness of covid michael i'm not sure if you knew this um and we produced a 2 hour film called the draft um which was to facilitate folk from various different contexts to we 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 drove through a scottish storm at the very beginning of january 2020 into an ex world war 2 bunker a prisoner of war camp and quite dramatic you can watch it if you're interested but we yeah. we subtitled that a conscription of conscience um mm. because there's a false assumption i think that that folk who aren't able to engage in a in the ecclesia the, in a congregation where they live because of doctrinal theological issues that aren't as Abraham Heschel would say, are not slight. Um, there's an assumption, a wrong assumption, that it's because people don't want to fellowship or they don't want to be in a building or they don't want to be together. Um, my, my point I'm trying to make and the question I'm trying to ask is to do with the remnant in that does it, would you, would you say that a time perhaps came for, for Elisha as the leader of that Context. Do you think a time will come where the remnant, which in and of itself can become quite cliched in an unhelpful way, um, do you think the remnant will a point will come where enough is enough, and that this conscription of conscience, with world events surrounding and swirling, do you think there's a ratcheting up of that spirit wrought process where uh, consciences are conscripted? Yes, I think conscience is actually a very important word in the circumstances because one of the things that um, totalitarian secularism is doing is um, uh, uh, is making a frontal assault on respect for conscience. So even in countries like Britain, where conscience has been respected, um, uh, even in the context of war, uh, where conscientious subjectors uh, have been respected, they've been given something else to do, perhaps something very tough to do, like being stretcher bearers, uh, but they've not been forced to carry weapons. Similarly, the Abortion Act, I mean, I'm not a fan of it, as you might imagine, mm -hmm. but even that, the 67 Abortion Act, made room for conscience of believers, however much that is now being restricted by the courts, uh, but that provision was made. Now, though, in terms of uh, beginning of life issues, end of life issues, uh, the nature of marriage, the nature of family, uh, that mm -hmm. room for conscience is not being made. Um, and I think we need to be very worried about it as citizens, let alone as members of, uh, of, the, of churches. Uh, but that is also now affecting churches, so that um, what is first mooted as an option for people to take then gradually becomes compulsory. So in the Episcopal Church, at first it was, uh, well, you know, let um, people with same-sex attraction do what they want to do. It's not going to affect you. But then how you think and how you behave and what you do becomes compulsory. So a bishop has just been defrocked there uh, for 
saying clearly that he adhered to the teaching of the Bible about marriage. I mean, that's the kind of absurdity to which mm-hmm. we have got. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a British context, a, Brit- a British, in a, a bishop in Britain, is it? No, no, this isn't the Episcopal Church in America. In America, okay. But uh, these things uh, are beginning to happen here. I mean, the Scottish Episcopal Church has openly gone that way, and the Church in Wales is in a few days' time uh, voting on this issue. Uh, the Church of England, um, there are many people within the Church of England who are worried about the direction that it is taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Methodist Church in Britain has just made a decision which is extremely worrying. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite widespread. Mm-hmm. It's worrying, but also in another, another bizarre sense, very encouraging because, um, well, Depending on what your eschatological view is, I, I suppose things are things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, we focus on this podcast and generally on the Lord's return, and uh, mm-hmm. that's why we're trying to press the point about faithfulness because the bride will be prepared, the bride will be re- the remnant will be ready. Um, I'm just. Yeah. Uh, I'm just getting at this this issue to do with what is often, I think, a bit of a cop-out, if I can speak frankly, with Christians who will often avoid, sidestep, um, or just deny altogether that there is any kind of conscience issue here. Um for the sake of the for the sake of the greater good. In other words, my staying within whatever hypothetical context is um for the benefit of others around us or for the Christian witness as a whole or for unity, that's a big one. Um, and I'm just wondering if these world events that are escalating um, are to help help with that, you know, for, it, for, for there to be less cop-out and more, more actual conviction about making decisions that might cost us something. Or maybe if we could just focus on the scripture here just as a closing thought. Um Related to that, where in verse 20 of 1 Kings 19, after Elijah had, Elisha had voluntarily, there's that beautiful sense of Elisha just, of course, Elijah, the, this legend, this master, this, you know, I'm sure he viewed him as a lord himself of types, uh, responded to the call. But then look, and then Elijah said, go back. What What have I done to you? <laughs> What have I done to you? I wonder if that is something of profound prophetic experience. Thinking about Elisha and what what he Elijah would have known was going to come in Elisha's life by way of great personal cost, specifically because of the prophetic calling and assignment, and how that may or not relate with the remnant today and the personal cost that will be. Um, asked of anybody that wants to be faithful to the Lord Jesus in 2021? Yes, I mean, that incident, of course, reminds us of Jesus' own encounter with the rich young man, you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on a number of occasions where people wanted to follow him, but at the same time didn't want to give up whatever they were engaged in, they were, they were challenged about that. Um, and Elisha, indeed, uh, like Elijah, uh, is a type. Uh, of of Jesus and yeah. reminds of Jesus. 
So, um, for instance, his um, uh, many of his miracles, whether they are about feeding, you remember when he fed all the sons of the prophets, uh, that reminds us of the feeding of the 5,000 or the healing of Naaman from leprosy. That's the one time where Elisha is actually mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, as a universalizing of the message of salvation. Um, you know, there were many lepers in Israel, but Jesus said, but Elisha was sent to Naaman the Syrian. Mm-hmm. Just like Elijah was sent to the widow of the Sidonia, yeah. Uh, even though there were many widows in Israel. Um, so, and then the, the raising of the dead, um, all of these things remind us, and I meant to remind us of Jesus, of course. Uh, but on the question of unity, which, as you say, is often um, sort of flung in the face of anyone uh, asking for fidelity, Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus' great prayer for unity, which is often mentioned in this context, is the so-called high priestly prayer for unity before his suffering in John chapter 17. Uh, he makes it quite clear that this is about unity in truth. So, yes, uh, he prays for the unity of his disciples, but then he goes on to say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Uh, and for their sake, I sanctify myself, I consecrate myself, so that they may be consecrated in truth. So there is no unity without truth. Of course, this truth has to be expressed and lived in love, um, faith working out in love, as the Apostle says in Galatians. Nevertheless, uh, we can't um, ignore that aspect of, of This is not just a unity of aggregates, of counting up, but of unity in the truth Mm -hmm. of the good news of salvation. God is salvation, as the word Elisha means. Yes. And as you alluded to a few minutes ago, there's there's a vast, arguably infinite difference between the imperfection of the church that will be there at the end of the age, because we are not we are not with him fully. Um, we're sinners saved by God. There's a vast difference between that and these other red lines that you've talked about that are, that are being crossed across all these different socio-cultural issues. Um, <laughs> I find Elijah's um, words there to Elisha, what have I done to you? Um, I, I just find that quite interesting as as we think about Paul, the Apostle Paul's command to the church to eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. It's almost as though for me, looking at that, just just very live and spontaneously now, there's almost a sense in which even in the heart of the Father, who, as Jesus was speaking and praying with him there, dwelling in him, abiding in him, there's that sense in which even the Father knows the cost to his disciples here, here in Great Britain today or anywhere in the world who were eagerly designed to have that prophetic edge. Does that make sense? And, mm. Eli- and Elijah recognizing that that was something that was happening to Elisha in the very moment that we're reading about here. Yes, I, I take this to mean uh, the Elijah casting his mantle on Elisha, that God's act is always prior to any response from us. Uh, but if we do not respond, 
if we do not respond immediately and uh, and appropriately uh, then of course uh, god's uh, action towards us has no benefit for us what have i done to you what good is this to you it's no no good at all even though god has shown us his love if we don't respond then that doesn't have any effect does it no what, what do you do you think that was the focus of what elijah was meaning when he says that to elisha Yes, I think he sensed an inadequate response. From Elisha? From Elisha at that time. And then later on, of course, Elisha does respond adequately. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this case, it was a, it was a warning. Um, you are not responding to God's call uh, adequately. And we find that today, uh, that um, people uh, discern God's calling um, but they, I mean, how often have I heard people being called to the ministry who uh, want just to minister in the um, in the safe and the wealthy, yes. comfortable parts of, of the world? I mean, I used to say when we were making appointments and things that um, 85% of the population in Britain lives in urban or suburban conurbations uh, and 15% in rural areas. And yet people, it seemed to me that 85% of those who wanted to minister wanted to minister in the rural areas. So who was going to minister in the heavily populated cities of of our nation? And this can be said of the world generally. It's very revealing um, for, for for everybody listening to this. It will be it will be common for people to hear us talk about this kind of thing. But our desire is to Michael is to see the church prepared for his coming. Yes, whether in our whether in our lifetime or not. Um, in one sense, we're assuming that we won't get to see that in our lifetime. I'm forty one now. Um, but nevertheless, there, there there has to be this serious sense of preparation um, whilst anticipating the delay as per Matthew 25. Um, so that's our focus. That's why we're having these conversations. I'm just wondering before, before perhaps you'd pray for us, was there anything else you wanted to say for an audience who are already thinking like that, already have that thought in their mind? In other words, that there needs to be something much more radical, um, seismic happen within the within the global church where there is such apostasy yeah um, just to say well of course we are continually praying for the coming you know maranatha indeed uh, and um, jesus uh, through the work of his spirit uh, comes to us already so as a kind of um, pledge of that glorious coming so he comes to us uh, in the reading of the word of course as we've just seen mm-hmm. uh, even in parts that may not immediately be obvious as being about him uh, he comes to us in prayer he comes to us in personal experience i mean we are finding this uh, very dramatically, particularly with people in Iran who are coming to faith through dreams and visions, 
in a way that is quite unique and absolutely, I think, in God's providence. Mm -hmm. uh, he comes to us as we worship together, as we celebrate the sacraments. Uh, these are all pledges, uh, uh, means of grace and pledges of what is to happen. Yeah. Indeed. Maybe we'll speak again. Um, I'd love to, if, if time affords, in months to come um, about that your insight into the into the Islamic world, particularly Iran, it's very exciting. Thank you, thank you for joining me again, um, Michael. Thank you very much for your for your time. Maybe maybe you just pray for us as we close. Yes, of course, yes. So let us um, pray um, with the words uh, that we have in Scripture already. Mm. Uh, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Mm. Um, we pray for that uh, coming in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. As we worship, as we read God's word, as we open ourselves to the experience and the work of the Spirit. And uh, we pray that uh, that sense of his coming will prepare us for that great coming when every eye will see um, and um, every knee will bow. Uh, to the one who comes. Um, and so we pray that we may be witnesses to the one who is coming, to the one who has come, the one who is coming, uh, and the one who wants to come into people's lives and to change them uh, personally, um, in families and in nations. We ask um, for a renewal of that sense in this country, um, with such a history of uh, fidelity <clears throat> to God's word, that um, the Spirit will work mightily to bring people back to uh, that faithfulness, bring people to that sense of the Lord's presence among them. In His name we ask. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Into the Prey, breaching the chaos of the church. We trust that it's been both provoking and challenging as well as inspiring and comforting in the midst of this very evil present age. If you'd like to get behind what we're doing, if you'd like to support us through prayer and through financial support, we'd be deeply grateful for both of those two ways of supporting. And you can do that and find out a little bit more information about that by going to firebrandnotes.com forward slash give that's firebrandnotes.com forward slash give we'd be deeply grateful check it out and we look forward to connecting with you soon maranatha